So we are continuing our series in, in Genesis this morning, uh, and I'm going to read to us the passage that we're going to we're going to look at here in just a moment. But uh, to kind of set it up for us, um, if you remember, uh, in recent weeks I have been summarizing. Uh, the book of Romans as God's good news for the whole world. And usually, uh, I think it's often the case that we tend to think of the idea of the gospel as a New Testament idea, not an Old Testament one. And that would be a huge mistake. Because, in fact, the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, he actually says that God preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And he's quoting from Genesis chapter 12, which we looked at last week. And I bring that up because if Romans is about God's good news to the whole world, that good news begins in Genesis chapter 12 and the story of Abraham. And as we saw last week, Abraham, God calls him to leave his home in Haran, long ways away from the land of Canaan, the promised land, uh, where God's people and the, and the, the bulk of the Old Testament story takes place. And he goes and he arrives there and yet he finds that there is a famine and he takes his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot and they continue journeying on to Egypt. And we discover that despite Abraham's, or Abram at the time, his positive beginning, responding to God's call, going and answering this call, and receiving God's promises, uh, he ends up lying about his wife in order to save himself in Egypt. And yet we come to chapters 13 and 14, and Abram and Sarai and Lot are now back in the land of promise. And that's where chapter 13 picks up. So if you have uh, your worship folder and like to follow along, we're going to look at select verses from both of these chapters. And uh, I'll tell you why we're looking at both of them together uh, here when we, when we get to the end of this. So feel free to just listen or follow along or you, know, you can look on a Bible if you have it. Genesis 13, beginning at verse 1. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev, that's the the desert region, the southern part of of, uh, Palestine. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. 
in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsmen, Lot, with his possessions, and the women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Kederlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Enir, Eshtol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, it's a long story. But what I want us to see as we turn to this passage, and in particular this whole section in Genesis, so Genesis 12 through the middle of chapter 25, it's really a study of Abraham in the school of faith. And when we take the scriptures as a whole, Abraham is the hero of faith. This is how Paul describes him, and we'll see in Romans chapter 4. He also does this in Galatians chapter 3, and especially in Hebrews chapter 11. And when we come to these two chapters, we see a very different Abraham than we saw in chapter 12. In chapter 12, Abraham was full of uh, cowardice. 
and fear. But when we come to chapters 13 and 14, that cowardice turns into confidence and courage. And we also notice in in these two chapters, his nephew Lot becomes a much more significant figure in the story. Lot has been in the, in the shadows of the story from uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Every now and then, whenever uh, it's mentioned, it says that Abraham and his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot. Lot's present, but he's not a main character until now. And what I want you to see, why does the, the narrator include Lot? And this is really important because we'll see as we work through the story of Abraham, Lot is what we would call a foil. That's a literary term to describe a character and a story who is there to be a contrast with the main character in order to help us to see truths and qualities about the main character that are particularly important for us to see. And, And what we see here is that Lot is the character of folly. He's a fool. Lot lives by sight, by appearances. What might seem good to you and me on the surface of things, in contrast to Abraham, who we see living by faith, by the promises of God. And they're a contrast. And so what I want us to do this morning is to look at these two chapters And we're going to discover the two dimensions of faith and then how does this kind of faith grow? The two dimensions of faith and how this faith grows. So first, let's look at what are these two dimensions of faith. And when we look at this story, I want you to think about these two dimensions of faith as really um, encapsulating everything about what it means to, to be in relationship with God, to live the life of faith. The first dimension we see here in chapter 13 is that faith pursues peace. Faith pursues peace. Now, just to give you some, some context here, again, Abraham and Lot, they're both back in the promised land that God has given and has promised to Abraham and to his offspring forever. They're back in the land of promise, and whereas previously, when they were in the land of promise, there was famine, and they were uh, not wealthy, and they didn't have what they need, and they had to go to Egypt. Now they are back in the promised land, and both Abram and Lot are described as being very wealthy. Verse 2, Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. In verse 5, Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. And as a result, there became a conflict between Lot's herdsmen looking over his flocks and Abram's herdsmen looking over his flocks. And without getting too bogged down in the details, what the narrator is showing us here is that Lot is is perhaps not the most... um, respectful nephew. Uh, He's throwing his weight around. Uh, He's saying, hey, Abram, uncle, I I have just as much as you do, and this isn't working. 
And what does Abram do? He comes to, to Lot. You look in verse 8. And, and Abram says, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. And then he says, If you take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if you take the right, I'll go to the left. Here is a man of faith pursuing peace. And what you need to know, especially in this culture, Abram had every right to demand the choicest land. Abraham is the superior. He is the one who has the rights and the power. And instead of exerting those rights and using that power, even in the face of indignation and disrespect and dishonor, what does he do? He gives up his rights. He does not pull rank. And instead, he lets Lot choose. Hey, you, you, you go where you want to go. And I will go where you don't go. Because I want there to be peace between us. And Lot lifts up his eyes and he chooses the Jordan Valley which is to the east of the land of promise. And as the narrator uh, cues us and indicates, this is where Sodom and Gomorrah are. As we'll see in chapters coming, this is not a good place. And in fact, he even says that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And yet Lot and his folly, that's exactly where he goes. He's a man who lives by sight, by appearances not by the promises of God. Now, what happens after Abram pursues this peace? Notice what, instead of Abram living by sight, God, in verse 14 through 17, he reiterates, he repeats his promise that he made to him in chapter 12, that all of this land will be yours. And your descendants will be so, so many. It's like the dust of the earth. The difference here is that God gives Abram's sight with his promises. In contrast to Lot, who lives by what he can see. Now what's interesting, I want you to notice here is, Paul picks up on this storyline In Romans chapter 12, when he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. How do you get that kind of faith? How is it possible for Abram to do this? Because you have to understand, it's a little hard for us, but land was everything. Having a place for your possessions, your cattle, those were your assets to flourish and to thrive. That was everything in this culture. How is it possible for Abram to be that open-handed, to live that open-handedly with Lot? How do you get that? Well, what I want you to see here real briefly is here we see a picture of what gospel faith looks like. Paul, in in Philippians chapter 2, he says 
to the church. He says, let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, for, for Abram, this faith is a gift. It's found only in relationship with God. And Paul picks this up and develops it when he says it's yours in Christ Jesus. And how does he describe Jesus? As one who was equal with God. God himself. Second person of the Trinity and yet didn't count that status as something that he had to grasp and hold on to and cling to. Instead, he gave it up. And he became a human being. He humbled himself. He became a servant, even at the point of death on the cross. Faith pursues peace. But not only does it pursue peace, we notice in chapter 14 that faith takes action. Let's look at this part of the story. Here, uh, I left out a number of verses where there are lots of kings' names and, and, and there are some confusing ones. What I want you to get is that there were five kings who had banded together, and there were four kings who had banded together. And the five kings included the kings from Sodom and Gomorrah, and they went after uh, these four kings, the chief of which was this guy who's got this funky name, Keterleomer. And what we see in this story is that these four kings, they beat the five kings. And in doing so, conquer Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom was where Lot lives. And, and Lot is carried off as a captive of war. And at that time, if that happened, that meant you were bound to a life of slavery. You were no longer free. And someone escapes and comes to Abram and tells Abram what has happened. Now think about this. Here is Abram. He's in the land of promise. He has everything he needs. Not only materially, but he has received God's repeated promise again that this land will be yours and your offspring will be more numerous than the dust of the earth. Why go after his nephew Lot? Why risk everything he has to go against four kings by himself and he's got some allies and friends but essentially think of it like this he is now going after four kings it's four against one you see faith takes action to rescue and to save the least deserving This is very counterintuitive, but it's what biblical faith is all about. Faith takes action not to, get, not to be uh, the first, not just to win, but to go after those who are the least deserving. It's costly, it's risky, and what, what's worth noting here is 28 times in chapter 14 the word king is used. And it's never used of Abram. But who ends up actually demonstrating what a king is like is Abram. 
And in fact, when he's blessed by Melchizedek, we discover that in fact, the true king of this story is not the five kings that get defeated or the four kings that win or even Abram who rescues Lot and these five city nations, these five kings who've been defeated. It's God. In verse 20, when Melchizedek in blessing Abraham said, Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Here we see God is the true king. And what I want you to think about here is, again, remember who this is written to. This is written to God's people on their way to the promised land. What does this story tell us? God's power to save, despite how things look. The odds were not good. It's four against one. Despite how things look, or despite what we deserve. This is a God unlike any other. And think about it too, that question, why would Abram go after this lot? His foolish, stupid nephew. He's wealthy. He has everything he needs. But instead he does. He goes. Listen to what John, the Apostle John, writes in 1 John chapter 3. He says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How do you get that kind of faith? How do you become that kind of person? Jesus, again, in Mark chapter 10, he, he, he tells us by, by explaining to us what he has come to do. When he says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. You get this faith by being served by Jesus. Now, here are those two dimensions. You've got faith pursues peace, and faith takes action. And we even looked at how you get it. You get it in Jesus. But I want to go a little further and ask, how does it grow? If this kind of faith is found in Jesus, how does it grow? Two ways we see in this passage. The first is by remembering God's promises. I want you to notice, if you look in, in chapter 13 again, verse 4, verse 3 and 4, but especially 4, the, the writer here tells us that he's, he's come back to where he was at the beginning. That's referring back to earlier in chapter 12 when Abraham arrives in the land of promise to the place where he had made an altar and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Verse 18. After this conflict with Lot and it's resolved peacefully and God reminds Abram of his promises, verse 18 says that Abram moved his tent and he came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there what? He built an altar to the Lord. Faith grows by remembering God's promises. The 
alters in this passage are how Abraham remembers God's promises. They tell us that his life is punctuated by worship and communion. Now, think for a moment with me. What, what is an altar? Um, we, we know, if you, if you know anything about the Old Testament in Leviticus, altars are the place where sacrifices happen. But there's more to it than that. One writer puts it like this. He says, an altar is an acknowledgement that something important has happened and needs to be remembered. A long-term memory aid for who God is and what he has done. An altar reminds us of the value of the one we worship. I want you to think for a a moment. Even though we're, we're looking at the early chapters of Genesis, we all need altars. We need long-term memory aids that remind us of who God is, what he's like. And I'll give you one example, and then I, I want to read to you um, another a couple examples by a writer who helped me think about this. This is why we, we do the Lord's Supper every week. It is God's long-term memory aid to you to remind you of who he is, what he is like, what he thinks of you, the lengths to which he is willing to go to rescue you. Now, I want us to think together for a moment about what might be an altar in your life to help you to remember the promises of God. One writer gives us some help here and some examples. He says, He's a counselor, and he was describing this idea of altars. He says, another young man found himself overthinking his faith and struggling to find any joy or genuineness in his walk with God. Every event, activity, choice, and recreation dragged with it a pressure to self-analyze. Ironically, my friend's intelligence and theological breadth hampered him from approaching God in a natural relationship. In an effort to break through his overthinking, and because he liked to cook... I asked him to go to the grocery store, buy himself something both healthy and mouth-watering, and savor it, prefaced only by a simple prayer of thank you. My goal was not to make him less precise in his theology or dwell less on how every moment can connect us to God. My goal was to help him build an altar to God through the act of cooking, through tasting and seeing and smelling that the Lord was good, in a way that would be unclouded by endless analysis. And then this writer says, I have various altars in my own life. A picture of my wife and children on my desk reminds me regularly to thank God for the family he's given. I try to play piano five minutes every day, which regularly reminds me how much beauty can can flow from even small ventures in self-discipline. When I drink tea, I try to force myself to focus on the taste and receive it as an experience of God's delight in giving us good gifts. And then he says he could give a number of other examples, but he mentions one more, and it's a AAA battery. He says, the AAA battery I keep on the chair, chair rail by my desk, this little battery refused to die week after week as it powered the audio recorder of a woman I counseled. She often taped our sessions so she could revisit helpful parts of our conversation later. The little battery that could now silently testifies to me 
and to her when I pointed out from time to time that God cares for his hurting children, brings and preserves words of hope through his people, and superintends every detail of our lives for our good. And I was thinking about this for myself, and I thought, this is kind of weird. I'm not into altars. Uh, It's not really a Presbyterian thing. Um, We don't like those things. So I'm a little uncomfortable talking about these things. You you can laugh about that. Um, And I thought about when I was in second grade, and uh, I had to stand up. I hated getting up in front of people to talk is ironic. And I had to recite a poem. And there was this girl. She was very good, very emphatic in her delivery. And I had to go after her and I, I hated this. I hated it. I got done with it and I was, afterward, I was in tears, all upset over I don't know what. And my mom came up to me and she handed me, this is in Ann Arbor, Michigan, so bear with me, uh, a little clay figurine of a Michigan football player. I still have it. And as I thought about that, it wasn't, when she gave that to me, when I look back on that, I wouldn't have thought of it this way at the time. But that little ridiculous, insignificant, inexpensive little clay figurine was an altar of what it means to be loved regardless of your performance, regardless of how good you are at the thing you're doing. It told me, there's good news for me when I'm face-to-face with things I don't like or ways I come up short, or my pride is hurt and broken, or where I'm so wrapped around the axle about how much I want to be the best, and that is the, 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 perhaps the best way to suck the life out of your soul. This little thing reminded me, and still does, of God's free grace. They're shown to me in this little gift, this little altar, this little token of love for my mom. Now, I want you to think about that. How does faith grow that pursues peace and takes action? It grows by remembering God's promises. How do you remember them? Well, look for those little altars in your life. And I know that's crazy to say, but think about the the idea of these altars as a metaphor. What are little ways in your life, things in your life that would point you to the God you serve? His goodness, His grace, His power, His unfailing love. So that's the first way, by remembering His promises. But then second, by living under His blessings. This character, Melchizedek here, is a um, very interesting character. He only shows up here in Psalm 110 and then Hebrews 5, 7, and 10, I believe. And he's here, this this priest of Salem, which is most commentators understand him to, to be Jerusalem. And he's described here as the priest of the Most High God. 
And as we, we come to, to understand more about him from the writer of Hebrews, let me read to you here from Hebrews chapter 7. We did this earlier, but let me read it again. It says, This Melchizedek came from Salem. He's priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abram apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem. That is, king of peace. Salem is, you could say, uh, a variation on the word shalom. Which is this profoundly deep and rich word in the Bible of wholeness and peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And later on in chapter 7 of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Your faith grows by living under the blessing of God in Jesus. This character, Melchizedek, in light of the whole Bible, is a prefigure of Jesus. He is a king of peace. He's a king of righteousness. He is a priest king. And the way that he, he gets described in, by the writer of Hebrews is he describes him as this, this figure in the story. You don't read about his parents. There's no mention of that. There's no mention of when he dies. And he carries almost this sense of he has no beginning and no end. And in that sense, he's just like Jesus. And Jesus is a priest forever. Why do you need to know that? How does that help your faith grow? to pursue peace and to take action. It's because if he is a priest forever, a priest king, that means his salvation is complete. There's nothing you lack. You have everything you need. That means you can live open-handedly towards everyone. That means you can take action for those who don't deserve it. Why Because that's what Jesus has done. In Jesus, God comes to us with a feast full of blessings upon blessings. Miles, you can bring, you can let the kids in, that's fine. Um, Melchizedek shows up with bread and wine. We're just about to enjoy the table together. The priest king, Jesus, comes to you with arms open with a feast of bread and wine to nourish you, to take care of you. Now, how are you supposed to think about this? What's, what's the so what? How do you know when to pursue peace or take action? Well, think about your own family. How do you know when to move towards someone, to give up your own rights? How do you know when to take action at great cost to yourself? I really know of only one answer, and and I realize this might not be satisfying to you because it, it grates against the sort of American impulse to have everything laid out and all the right tactics and strategies. 
But the answer to that is by knowing God. By knowing Him. The distinctive thing about Abraham here is not because he's a great guy, but it's the God that he knows. It's by knowing and dwelling and communing with this God that Abraham enters into these situations and pursues peace and takes action. It's not like Abraham would know how the, what the outcome would be, and neither do you or I. The life of faith is simply not, you can't reduce it to a set of strategies and tactics. It is a life of fellowship, of communion, of relationship, of living under God's blessings, freely given to you in Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we ask that as we continue to worship this morning, you'd be with us, you'd help us. We pray that you would create in us a faith that, that pursues peace, that takes action, and in doing so, follows after Jesus, who has come after us to reconcile us, to set us free as people who don't deserve to be rescued. Help us to see and to know that you are good. Help us to remember your promises and to live under your blessings. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.